The reading of God's word today comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. You can find it on page 900 of the Pew Bible and page 1157 of Jesus, following Jesus' Bible. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In verse, in chat, in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go to children's worship in our children and youth discipleship building, they can line up behind Elliot and our team uh, will, will walk them across the way. If you're visiting, we just ask that one parent go with them to get them registered uh, with our volunteers. I recently heard a Christian uh, whom I care about and respect very much uh, say this. He said, well, we're going to heaven when we die. So what am I supposed to do in the meantime? The tone of his question almost made it sound like this, this life is mostly waiting. His question made it sound like the whole point of this life is believe Jesus, get approved to go to heaven, then coast. If that's the case, what is life for? I think if that's what you think life is, I mean, that's a, a good question. And so this is what my friend said. Be a good person. You're approved to go to heaven, so just be a good person. Work hard. Be a good neighbor. Tell the truth. Be patriotic. Take care of your family, etc. That answer does not satisfy me. In fact, that answer sounds eerily similar to many secular thinkers. The prevailing thought of postmodernism seems to be this. Everybody needs a faith or a philosophy or some kind of belief so that they can cope with the idea of their eventual death. Everybody needs something so that they can cope with that idea. But between that belief and that and your death, just be nice to everybody. Be good. Be moral. Don't step on each other's toes. If our understanding of Christianity is starting to sound like that, it's not Christian anymore. It's become warped by the spirit of the age. Jesus didn't come so that we could escape death. Instead, he came so that we would live. And there's a big difference between the two. Today, we're reengaging with the Gospel of John. We studied John 1 through 6 in early 2022. Last winter and spring, we studied John 7 through 12. And from now until Easter, Lord willing, I'm hoping to cover John 13 through 17. The Gospel of John is a biography of Jesus. It was written by one of his closest disciples named John. And in John chapter 20, John tells us why he wrote this Gospel. He gives us a thesis statement. He said this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. When John says this, he isn't talking primarily about life in heaven. He's not primarily talking about life in the resurrection when Jesus comes back. He is talking about the new life that Jesus gives believers when they believe. So when a person believes in Jesus Christ, something miraculous happens. We've been talking about it all morning. Uh, Some of the texts we saw said they are brought from the domain of darkness into light. We see other texts that talk about how we are brought from death to life. When a person believes the gospel, they are resurrected. They are brought from brokenness and sin and death and despair to life in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that this life matters. You don't exist simply to be good. To bide your time until eternity, to be moral? No. Jesus' intent was much more radical than that. He didn't come to prepare you for your eventual death. He came to empower you to live for the first time. He came to empower you to be what humanity was always intended to be. Heaven is not the big game. Now is. Now is. This life. How you spend Your life on this earth is the most important question you can concern yourself with. Once you've come to terms with who Christ is, then the question is, okay, how do I use this life? How you live today, how you speak and act and love, how you use your time, money, and resources, this is the big game. How you live matters. If it didn't, why would Jesus say things like, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? As though the things we do here have eternal impact. So the question, it's new year. It's a good time to be asking these sorts of things. Have you been attending to your life? Have you been investing your life well? Well, how do you know? you've invested your life well what's a life for why are we here how should we be living our lives jesus addresses these questions in john 13 through 17 let me give you a brief overview of these five chapters starting with the first verse so go back to chapter 13 verse 1 now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, on this night, knows that within a matter of hours, these five hours, these five chapters cover just a couple hours, if that. Jesus knows that within a matter of hours, he's going to be betrayed by Judas, arrested tried, mocked, shamed, crucified, and dead. This can happen in hours. Jesus also knew that he wouldn't stay dead. And we'll see that as we go through these chapters, that he would be resurrected and he would ascend to the Father. But where would all this leave his disciples? These that he loves, this verse says. 
They're going to be without Jesus in the world. And so in these five chapters, Jesus is lovingly preparing them for what lies ahead. And what lies ahead? Life. Jesus is preparing them to live their lives without Jesus there physically. For five chapters, Jesus casts a vision of the Christian life. In this strange era between the ascension of Jesus to the throne and his return. And how we live in this era matters deeply. So what's life for? How should we live? What should we be pursuing every day of our lives? If we're going to live life well, we need to know what life is about. And we need to look no further than Jesus. Jesus' life is the best model we have to imitate of a well-lived life. Now hear me clearly, that was not Jesus' primary reason for coming. He didn't come primarily to be a moral exemplar and to say, hey, be like me. He came as Savior and King to redeem his people and to restore creation. But in so doing, he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the Father in every way. So if we want to know what our lives should look like, we can look at Jesus. And if I was going to sum up Jesus' life, if I was going to describe him, here's where I'd start. He loved his Father. Everything that Jesus did, he did in response to his Father, And he did it out of love for his father. Therefore, a life well-lived begins there. You are alive on earth for the purpose of loving God. That's why you're here. For the record, every one of you from youngest, who's our youngest one here? Might be Rhett. Rhett might be our youngest. Mary? I'm not going to ask who our oldest member here is, okay? So from top to bottom, (laughs) I didn't hear it, but I know there was a barb in there. I love you, Mary. (laughs) From youngest to oldest, you are here to love God. God this morning gave you breath. God this morning caused your heart to beat. And the reason, the purpose for it all, it's not a mistake that you're alive. It is a very intentional choice by God. And it's that you would love him. But how do you love God? How do you love a spirit? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men, women, boys, and girls. So how, how do we love him? We can answer that by looking at Jesus. Jesus loved the Father. And our love for God can be modeled after Jesus' love. And Jesus loved his Father by obeying him. John 13 to 17 is not the most streamlined, logical scripture. It's, it's one long narrative scene. Jesus is talking to his disciples at the dinner table. Uh, there may be, and I, I think there's a break in the middle of it where Jesus and the disciples get up, and then the conversation continues as they're walking along the road. The disciples interrupt Jesus with questions, and he responds to them. It's like one long shot in a movie. It ends with Jesus praying, so it's a very dynamic, real-to-life scene. That doesn't always make for easy preaching. So through these five chapters, there are several themes that get developed at different points. And so from time to time, like today, I'm using these two disparate texts that don't seem connected. It's one long conversation, uh, but trust me, we're going to cover, Lord willing, everything in the five chapters by Easter. Regardless, let's look in chapter 14 at how Jesus describes his love for his Father. So look at chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no claim on me. So Jesus knows that soon Judas is going to show up. He's already left the scene at this point. Uh, and he is un- Judas will come under the influence of Satan to betray Jesus into the hands of the ruling authorities. But Jesus makes the point that Satan has no claim over him. The only reason that Jesus was arrested and crucified and killed is because Jesus chose to be. It was Jesus' intention to be arrested and killed. Why? Because that was the means by which he would be exalted and by which his people would be saved. But before all that, because it was the Father's command. Look again at verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. So Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his eventual death for sinners was the will and command of God the Father. Jesus was not coerced into this. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't a passive victim. No, he chose to go to the cross out of love, not only love for his people, but out of love for the Father. Look again at verse 31. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus connects obedience with love. He obeys the Father so that the world might know that he loves the Father. I'm pretty sure in the 21st century, we don't always connect obedience and love. Probably because we misunderstand love. Also because we have a sin problem. As children, we have a difficulty connecting obedience and love, and we still do as adults. So let's try to understand what Jesus is saying. How does, what does obedience to God have to do with love for God? I'm going to explain it two ways. Hopefully one of them will work for you. I'm going to explain it logically. I'm going to use a syllogism because I'm a nerd. And then I'm going to explain it confessionally. I'm going to use the documents of the church that, that try to explain the truths of Scripture to you. So here's a syllogism to start. If you know and admire God's character, what are you going to do? You'll trust him. That's my first statement. That's a Protestant, right? Is that right? Number two, if you trust God, you'll do what he says. Therefore, here's my conclusion, knowing God and admiring his character, which is how I would define a, a relationship of love, leads to obedience. So that's my, my, my little syllogism. You actually know this is true already. You know this from your relationships. Who do you listen to? Whose advice do you take? Whose commands do you obey without even thinking about it? I promise you, you've got somebody, a family member or an old friend, that when they speak, you just listen differently. Why? Because of who they are. Because of who they have proven themselves to be. You might have a a favorite author or theologian or preacher or politician or thinker that when they speak, you just give it more weight because you admire those people. You respect those people. Dare you say, dare I say, you, you love them. I'll tell you what, when Henry Beck speaks, I listen. Do I always agree, Henry? <laughs> but I listen. I admire this man. And so I know that when he speaks, he speaks with my best intent at heart, with love of God in his heart, 
And so I listened to him. And by the way, I don't listen at first, but about a week later, I call him and say, I was wrong. You're, you're right, Henry. So maybe one of these days I'll actually trust the poor, poor man. If you know God, you know his character. If you admire him, how are you going to respond to his words? You trust him and obey them. But the reality is we don't always obey God. Why not? Because we start trusting other voices, other people, ourselves, the world, more than we're trusting God in that moment. But the point stands logically that if you're loving God, if you know God, you admire God, you admire his character, you're going to trust and obey him. Now, I've made the point logically. Let me try to make it theologically using the catechism of the church. So starting today and in the next few months, we're going to be learning again the catechism for younger children, uh, which is deduced from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you have already memorized the beginning of it. So we're going to see who remembers the answers to the first four questions. Are we ready? Adults can do it too. It doesn't just have to be kids. It's useful for everybody. Who made you? What else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. So, confessionally, we believe this. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Love for God expresses itself in obedience. The Westminster Confession says the same. In the person justified, however, faith is always accompanied by all the other saving graces and is not a dead faith, but works by what? Love. Where do the Westminster guys get all this? From a text like this, but also from a text like this. First John, also written by the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because we don't obey God like a slavish taskmaster. I wake up and here's the law that I must follow today. No, we love God. We respect God. We honor him and trust him. If you feel that way about God, if you know God in that way, what are you going to do? You're going to obey him. Guess what? That's why you exist. It's why you're alive. To be so gripped with the character of God. To be so enamored with who he is. That you can't help but live in his way. Where does that kind of admiration for God, that kind of love for God, where, where does it come from? Our love for God grows just like our love for anyone grows. So let's use a, a human example. How did I fall in love with Megan? How did our love grow? First, I saw her. And I knew I needed to get to know that woman. So what did I do? I plotted and I schemed and I figured out a way to be around her as much as I possibly could be. I pursued her. I intentionally spent time with her. Eventually, I told her very assertively that I wanted to take her out on a date. And then every day that week, I took her out on a date. 
And all throughout that process, what was I doing? I would not shut up about this poor woman. I told every person high and low that I could meet about this woman, Megan, while we were dating, even though we were in our mid-20s, we still wrote love notes to each other. When I was in class at seminary, and when she, she was a school teacher, when her kids were taking quizzes, she would write little love notes. And at the end of the day, I'd get this like folded up little love note from her. It was really cute. We talked on the phone for endless, just ridiculous amounts of time. We ate together. We did things together in our love group. That's a familiar story. You've heard this story before. Many of you have lived it. But that story of human love is supposed to teach us about the love that is shared between Christ and his church. It's meant to teach us something about love for God. Here's the first thing it tells us. Before we ever love God, he chooses and pursues us. Go back to chapter 13, verse 1. Now, we're going to see this a lot in these chapters, and you see it a lot throughout John's gospel, but we see it in this first verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. Whom did Jesus love? The ones whom his father had given him out of the world. It was these people that Jesus pursued. The ones whom the father had chosen. Now there are better examples in John's gospel we can look at. We're not going to for right now. But this text and many others are one example of where John's gospel highlights the doctrine of predestination. That God chose unconditionally, out of the world, those who would belong to his son. But in the context of John's gospel, when you hear John talking about Jesus' love for his people, uh, when you read about the father giving them to the son, the doctrine doesn't have the same bite or offense that a lot of people impute to the language of predestination. Why not? Because this is how love works. I loved my wife and I pursued her. As Christ loved and pursues his bride. And I promise you, there's not one person that faults me for choosing Megan and not choosing some other woman. Rather, they rejoice that I chose and pursued Megan. I promise you, I made a very wise choice. The predestining work of God is all about love. John himself says it in 1 John chapter 4. He says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. So our love for God begins with his love for us. He makes the first move, and we respond to his love with love. So our love for him grows, again, going back to kind of how we love anybody. Our love for God grows as we respond to him by spending time with him and thinking about it. We're going to talk about this at length in John 13 to 17. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about union with Christ. I'm going to keep it really simple today since the beginning of the new year and talk about a way you can spend time with God, and that's through Bible reading and prayer. Bible reading and prayer, if the idea freaks you out, you think you can't do it, hear this. It's not a ritual. It's not the point. It's not even, the intention is not for it to be a a, a habit. 
If you're treating Bible reading like a measurable goal first, you're probably approaching it wrong. Because reading the Bible means spending time with God relationally. When we read this book, something relational is happening. God's talking to us from this scripture. And how do we respond? We talk back in prayer. So scripture and prayer are a two-way dialogue between us and God. Just like Megan and I wrote love letters and talked on the phone and spent time together. You want to spend time with God? You get in the word. You read it and you pray. Now, maybe you don't know where to start with that. You've tried to read the Bible before. You've tried to pray and it's been difficult. If you don't know where to start, I would encourage you to meet God in the Gospels and in the book of Psalms. In the Gospels, the four books that are biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels and in the book of Psalms, we find a very intimate portrait of God's character. Those five books are the ones that most quickly move me to tears and joy because God's character, his beauty, is just, it's just laying on the surface in the face of Christ and in the songs of the saints. We hear who God is. It's my favorite place to meet him. It's my favorite place to experience him and to meditate on him. You exist to love God, which means that any time spent with God or spent thinking about God, that's always time well spent. You have invested your life well in those moments. It's a life well lived. Our love grows for him by spending time with him and thinking about him. But there's other ways that our love for him grows. When we tell others about him, And when we celebrate him, just like I did, I couldn't shut up about this poor woman, and I still haven't shut up about her. Again, this is something we'll talk about a lot in John 13 to 17. But when we talk to other people about God, whether it's another Christian or a non-Christian, when we talk about God or or when we simply, simply celebrate him, when we worship, that stirs up our affections for God. I tell people about my kids all the time because I love them. And then as I tell people about my kids, it stirs up my affections for them. It's a self-perpetuating process. Likewise, when we put the praises of God on our lips, either to people or to God himself, it grows our love for him. Worshiping God in public or private grows our affection for God. So when I learn and sing new songs about God, when I remember and sing old songs when I read the prayers of the saints and the creeds of the church, when I hear the scriptures read to me and preached to me and sung to me by people that I know and love, all this grows our love for God, and it's what you were made for. We were made for worship. Anytime you're talking about God, anytime you're celebrating God in public or private, you are fulfilling your reason for existing. Think about that. And it means that it is time well spent. You exist to love God. And we can grow our love for God by telling others about him, by celebrating him. But here's a final way. By being intentional with acts of love. Eventually with my wife, I had to act. I had to kiss her. I couldn't couldn't take it. I had to marry her. We got a house and we made it a home. We had kids. These were all intentional, meaningful acts born of love that led to love. And we do the same thing with God. We make a public profession of faith 
in Jesus before a body of Christians, and it grows our love. We take communion, and it grows our love. When we confess our sins and repent, it grows our love. These are all actions that God commanded us to do, that when we do them with regularity and intention, His obedience, it grows our love. And again, it's all worth your time. You exist for these things. You're alive on earth for the purpose of loving God. And as we do these five things, it grows our affection for him. But let me mention one final thing before we close. One more note on on chapter 14, verse 31. It's kind of odd, and I don't want to miss it, especially because it leads us into next week's sermon. 1431, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Okay, so Jesus obeyed the Father out of love. He loved the Father and therefore obeyed. That's true. But Jesus goes a step further and says he obeyed the Father so that the world would know that he loved the Father. Jesus wanted other people to see his love for God. That's strange. Why would he want other people to know that he loved God? When we love God in this life, it makes our lives a showcase for the glorious character of God. When I look at Jesus' life, what do I see? I see God. I see God's character emanating through him and in him. Why? Yes, because he was God but also because he obeyed God. When he obeyed God, he obeyed the commands that flowed from God's character. He looked and lived like God. And the same thing is true of you. If you love God, and if you obey God, your life will look more and more like who? Jesus. That's right. Jesus was like God the Father. And if you love God, your life will look more and more like Jesus. And you know what we call that? Glorifying God. This is what it means to glorify God, to make God's delightful character apparent for others to know, believe, and love God. How do we do this? We do it through our lives. We do it through our love. We do it through our words. Jesus wanted other people to see God because if they could see God for who he really is, perhaps they too would take delight in him. He loved the Father and he wanted others to love the Father, so he wanted God's character to shine through him. He wanted others to see the Father in his life so that they would be drawn to the Father himself. Therefore, to love God is to be so personally gripped with his character that we want to be like him so that others would see him and love him too. That's why you exist. Life isn't about believing Jesus, being a decent person, and going to heaven when you die. That thought makes God a means to an end. No, God and his glory are the end. He is the purpose. He is the focus. He is the center, not only of your individual life, but of all creation. We don't exist for heaven We exist for the glory of God in the here and now. God created us from the dust of this earth so that we would live on this earth glorifying him. And when Jesus comes back and we're resurrected, what are we going to do then? 
We're going to live in a renewed version of this place for the glory of God. Life on earth glorifying God by loving him. That is what we're made for. You exist to be so gripped by God's character that you want to be like him, that you want others to know and love him too. That is why you exist. To glorify God by loving him and doing what he commands so that your neighbors might know him and they would glorify him too. And that the glory of God would fill the earth as this vision of God's glory spreads from shore to shore. If you're going to look at your life and assess, am I living it well? Am I fulfilling my purpose? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? You've got to know what it's about. We need to understand what life is about if we're going to live it well. But we haven't exhausted it all. This is only part one of what is life about. So come back next week as we look at a second aspect of why you exist. You're here not only to love God, you're also here to love his church. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that in Christ we see your love. It so moves me, Lord Jesus, this statement that you loved your disciples who were in the world and you loved them to the end. And it doesn't just mean the cross, your death. You will love us to the end of all things. Holy Spirit, may you reveal to these people in this room how greatly you love them. That they might be awakened and enlivened to such a love for you that it turns everything in their life upside down so that their life is so irradiated with your light and beauty that people would look at them and say, who is this person? Because the nature and character and beauty of God is shining through them. Lord, fill us with Christ, who is all in all, that we may love you as he does. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.